The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Thanks so much for being tuned in, and thanks for being part of the show where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. Well, two weeks ago, an interesting thing happened in Boston. A 55-foot tree arrived to be the Christmas tree for this year on Boston Common. And uh, this beautiful, tall spruce tree was shipped to Boston all the way from Halifax, Nova Scotia in Canada. As it was last year, and the year before, and the year before that. Why? Well, the custom began way back in, um, actually, uh, 1917. And uh, this past week is not only the 76th anniversary of Pearl Harbor Day, not only this week do we observe the fact that exactly 76 years ago, one Saturday morning on December the 7th, America woke up to a shock greater than the shock we all felt that Tuesday morning September the 11th, 2001. I say greater because uh, uh, it was unexpected. At least we we suspect it was unexpected. There are reasons to believe that uh, President Roosevelt might have been aware of it and allowed it to happen in order to change uh, public opinion in America in favor of the war. But that's a different discussion. For now, uh, we're just looking at the fact that uh, 76 years ago was the incredible shock of Pearl Harbor. But a bit before that, exactly 100 years ago this week, 100 years ago exactly this last Wednesday, um, the biggest non-nuclear explosion of all time occurred in the harbor of Halifax, Nova Scotia. Um, It was a huge event, and uh, uh, 2,000 people were killed in one blinding instant as this enormous explosion took place. Um, A whole part of the harbor, the water was vaporized, literally just turned into a cloud of steam. There was a, a tsunami in the harbor caused by the explosion that tossed big ships up onto dry land. A, um, an anchor that weighed several tons on one of the ships was tossed three miles up the hill into the city. A cannon, huge cannon, was blasted four miles, falling out of the sky. Um, it was a most extraordinary event. It was a terrible accident. It killed 2,000 Nova Scotians right away destroyed 16,000 houses, 
injured nearly 10,000 Nova Scotians, blinding uh, several hundred of them immediately in that first instant. Um, it was really something. And uh, what happened was that Massachusetts immediately sent supplies, doctors, nurses, medications, and, uh, and so did other places in America. But uh, Massachusetts was the first to respond, being fairly close. And uh, it's interesting, of course, because if you think back from 1917, a uh, hundred years earlier, 1812, America and Canada had been at war. Obviously, 1776, America and Canada had been at war. And so for this instant and immediate response uh, from Massachusetts to help the people of Halifax, uh, this was a big deal. And uh, it was the first arrival of outside help. And uh, uh, they, the records show how overwhelmed the survivors in the town of Halifax were. Uh, people were weeping and, and expressing gratitude. And uh, from that day to this, every single year, the people of Halifax send a Christmas tree to the people of Boston. And every year, that Christmas tree stands on Boston Commons. But uh, what I, one of the things I discovered was that actually very few Bostonians have the slightest idea of what it's all about. To some extent, it's lost history. People don't even really know what actually took place. But... Uh, I'll tell you uh, just a little bit more about that. I also want to contrast it with uh, what happened in the summer of 2005 in New Orleans. You might remember Hurricane Katrina. And uh, that was also a huge event that uh, hurt the city badly. Uh, but the things that happened in Katrina... And I'll tell you, I'll remind you a little bit of some of the things that happened when 30,000 people were crowded into the Superdome. And uh, none of those things happened in 1917 in Halifax, Nova Scotia. So what has changed? Why is it that today looting, raping, murdering, killing, why are these things seen more frequently in uh, disturbances, in, in, uh, in upheavals, in crises, whereas in the past, this didn't happen so much. What's that about? We'll talk about that. I also want to tell you about uh, my strenuous rejection of the term that you're now hearing flung around by careless commentators and... and uh, uh, pontificating pundits on, on the news, uh, it, you've heard them say toxic masculinity, right? In the, in the flow of drama about the sexual harassment, all of a sudden cases of 30 years ago being dredged up and uh, men being made accountable for things they did or didn't do uh, 30 years ago, do women ever lie? Are women capable of lying? At the, uh, the, the current mood would say no. Any suggestion of even questioning or uh, suggesting that guilt, uh, innocent until proven guilty, none of that is out there. I mean, obviously, uh, a lot of this is credible. In many cases, 
the men have uh, confessed and apologized, but um, it's, uh, it's, it's hysterical and certainly not good for society. Obviously, these things that have been happening in entertainment and politics and business for years are also, these are not good things, but this is probably not the best way to clean up the stables. And uh, then we also have to talk about another event this uh, past week, which is that President Trump recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Not a big deal, you would have thought, except it was a big deal, and it is a big deal. So all of those things we have to do, and I also want to do something else. Now, you'll have to tell me uh, whether you like this or you don't like this, because the show is for you. Without you, I wouldn't be here. So I, I'm actually going to talk about a poem and tell you the, the poem. Um, it's um, it, It's... It's something you're just going to have to decide whether you like. I, I don't think I may have done it once or twice before. I certainly don't do it very often, but uh, I do want to do it on this show because uh, it has so much to do with the unease I think that many of us are feeling in terms of. So, what is really happening to our culture? Uh, we we hardly recognize ourselves anymore. What's this all about? What is going on? And the great Rudyard Kipling, uh, a, a British poet uh, who died about 19, died just before World War II, actually. And uh, this particular poem I'm reading uh, was written in 1919, so just after World War I, which is amazing because it uh, presciently speaks about things that happened um, in World War II and later and the reason I'm reading it is because it applies so poignantly to the circumstances in which we find ourselves today as well. Uh, the poem is called The Gods of the Copybook Headings. The Gods of the Copybook Headings by the poet Rudyard Kipling. Now, I say the great poet Rudyard Kipling, but um, I can assure you that if you were to look him up or inquire about him, uh, I think you would discover that the, the the popular culture at the moment despises and detests him. Uh, he's, he's considered to be reactionary and not progressive enough. Uh, he's a person who thought that Western civilization was good and valuable and important. He thought that Britain brought civilization to the lands of Africa and India that it came to. And, of course, these are extremely unpopular viewpoints today. Um, regardless of the fact that in, in, in well, uh, I, I was, I was going to tell you that uh, many of the people in, in India and Asia speak somewhat nostalgically of the days when the British were there. So this is not a simple thing, you know. Imperialism, not automatically evil. Uh, the idea that uh, colonizing is automatically disgusting and reprehensible not necessarily true. The idea that Britain hauled wealth away from its colonies, not necessarily true. If it were, they should have suddenly become far wealthier once Britain left. Not exactly how it worked. Even if the Spanish did haul uh, galleon loads of gold out of Central and South America, but... Um, 
with, uh, with Britain and its colonies, not so simple. I merely tell you this in order to recommend that uh, you treat with a grain of salt, if not an entire truckload of salt, some of the things you'll now hear about people like Winston Churchill, who was left out of the movie Dunkirk, and for this very same reason, by the way, that uh, he was a man who thought that the British Empire was good, and everybody knows that uh, dead white men are evil. This is part of the craziness that uh, makes me want to read the poem. And uh, the same treatment is uh, given Rudyard Kipling. He's seen as somebody, oh, you know, he believed in all these silly and terrible ideas. Uh, he wrote a poem called The Burden of the White Man, which I think I've spoken about in the past. And again, one has to read it rather than just listening to the title. And, uh, and so it is with this poem. Now, how am I going to do it? Well, I think what I'm going to do is tell you a little bit about the poem, tell you a little bit about what some of the words and phrases mean, as I understand them, and, um, and then I will read the poem through, uh, or, or perhaps what I should then do is then read it stanza by stanza, uh, mention a little bit about what the stanza is talking about, and then I'll give you the whole poem in one long shot. I think that might be the most useful way of doing it. Uh, it is entirely possible that I am uh, spending time on this that you don't want me to do. And if that is the case, I'm sorry. I guess you can skip through the next segment of the show if that's how you feel. Uh, and you can certainly go to my website at rabbidaniellappin.com and let me know that you do not want me to spend any time on poems in the future. But uh, if you do like it, uh, get hold of a copy of it and uh, perhaps use it around the family dinner table the next time you're all together. Or, uh, you know, make some folks you're, uh, you socialize with uh, at work or elsewhere, make them aware of it. And, uh, and I think people, people will find it interesting. I can tell you the majority of people that you and I talk with every day have never heard of this poem, know nothing about it at all, and might even not immediately understand it, in spite of the fact that when Kipling wrote it, many of the terms were terms that uh, uh, an English schoolchild would have been quite familiar with. Even the title, The Gods of the Copybook Headings. Uh, what are the copybook headings? And perhaps that might be the place to start just as soon as we come back. Meanwhile, special on a... Uh, uh, an audio resource all about Hanukkah, about the festival of, festival of light, and why for both Jews and Christians this time of the year is a time of uh, enlightenment, if you wish. And it's, um, it's, it's con the concept is to how to turn a 24-7 week into a 25-8 life. And 24-7 week, we all understand. 25-8 life, well, it's interesting. Both Hanukkah and Christmas start on the 25th day of the month. In the case of Hanukkah, the 25th day of the Hebrew month of Kislev, and, of course, the 25th of December. And uh, Hanukkah is an eight-day holiday. The significance of eight is something I cover in the program. Anyway, go to my website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and uh, take a look, read up about the uh, resource which you can download now at uh, a negligible price, virtually the price of a cup of coffee. 
well, I shouldn't say, uh, not a cup of coffee the way a cup of coffee should be sold for about 20 cents, but let's say more like a cup of coffee you might pay or buy in a uh, national coffee chain uh, whose name will not be mentioned until they are official sponsors of this particular show. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Quick break. Back with you in just a moment. More to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin, revealing how the world really works. On demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hi, I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and Retirement Curveball is a book by a finance expert that I respect, Dr. Tom McPhee. Whether you are thinking about retirement, are already retired, or have never given the big R even a thought, now is the time to welcome the contents of this book into your mind. The book is filled with compelling aha moments and will motivate you to make some highly effective changes in how you manage your money and your life. I know Dr. Tom McPhee and his terrific book, Retirement Curveball, and I do recommend it. Get the book at retirementcurveball.com or on Amazon. With stories in the areas of family, friendship, faith, and finance, this is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Only on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Welcome back to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, solemnly dedicate myself to revealing how the world really does work. And one of the ways in which the world works is that nothing stays the same. Things are either going up or they're going down. Things are getting better or they're deteriorating. That is how the world really works. And that is true for your business. That is true in uh, relationships. It's true in marriage, and uh, it is also true in the way uh, things are in a culture and a society. And I think that, uh, I think many people uh, share my concern now that we're on a downward, we have been on a downward tra trajectory. Um, I, I have said both before November the 8th and since November the 8th that we might just be being given a second chance. And I, I think that is true. I think that um, uh, even this past week, we, we saw some interesting things happen. But the overall trend through the, the last 50 or 60 years is clear. If you're willing to dig just a little bit more deeply, I think the, the trend actually begins to show up around about the First World War around about a hundred years ago. And if you look back and you see the kind of people who lived in America and who lived in England at those times, and by the way, the only reason I'm leaving out Sweden and, and Italy and, uh, and Denmark is because I don't know those areas very well. It may well be that what I'm speaking about applies to them too. But I'm not sure it does because, and I've spoken about this in the past and I will again, uh, there appears to have been something special in the way the English-speaking peoples have developed. I've spoken in the past about how clear it is that colonies of non-English-speaking places, Belgium and Germany, uh, b both had colonies in Africa, Portugal had colonies in Africa, none of them worked 
as well as England's colonies in Africa. Spain had colonies in the Americas, so did England. England's worked better. Australia and New Zealand worked better than colonies that had been created by Spain and by Germany and by Belgium. And so uh, not to go into the reason for that now, but uh, the English-speaking peoples uh, do happen to have had the, 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 the bright light of good fortune shining upon them for the longest time. And so I'm confining the discussion right now mostly to, to England and the United States. And you think back to the kind of people that uh, the United States had 100 years ago. And you think of the people that, uh, the United, that, that Great Britain had 100 years ago. Think about the, the senators. You know, and, and I'm not saying you have to go back 100 years, but during the last 100 years, uh, or go back a little more than 100 years, you had a senator called Hiram Revels. He was a Republican senator from Mississippi, and uh, he represented Mississippi during Reconstruction period. Uh, he was an African-American gentleman, terrific senator. Uh, you had Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, a Democratic senator, a phenomenal senator. Uh, you had Senator Henry Scoop Jackson from the state of Washington, a Democratic senator, uh, a truly substantive and real man. And now Senator Al Franken, Senator Charles Schumer. Come on, really? <laughs> it's, it's hilarious. And uh, it's also somewhat sad. I shouldn't have even said hilarious, right? It's just, it's, it's funny if you don't for a moment think that we have to live with the consequences and chaos caused by these clowns and kooks and creeps and cranks. The, the people today who represent us in Congress, do me a favor. It is almost impossible to escape the conclusion that we've gone from a period of, of dignity and discipline all the way now to a period of depravity and dependency. And all of that represents a terrible downhill trend. Well, the man I think of as a great poet of the English language, Rudyard Kipling, wrote about it in the year 1919. And the title of his poem was The Gods of the Copybook Headings. Now, let me just tell you what a copybook is. Uh, gone today, but um, in his day, in the early 20th century, English school children at school would do all their exercises in a copybook, their penmanship, their arithmetic, and it would be a, a bound book of blank pages called a copybook, right, in which you would copy your, your lessons. And the copybook headings were, on the top of every page, there was a saying, some aphorism of wisdom. It might have been a biblical verse. Uh, it, it could have been, um, uh, you know, a, uh, a, a slogan or a saying or a... A popular expression, and or a proverb, something like that, 
and um, and the the children would 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 be able to see that on each page there was something that added to their wisdom. Not surprisingly, uh, education was far more successful in those days than it is today. Uh, reasons, again, perhaps a topic for a different show. And uh, when Rudyard Kipling speaks of the title of his poem, The Gods of the Copybook Headings, what he's talking about are the underlying principles of morality and philosophy, the underlying principles of civic understanding that shaped the culture and which everyone recognized as immutable and permanent and uh, now, of course, we all labor under a superstition that these tried and true and tested ideas of the past can be safely jettisoned and that we are uh, perfectly capable of devising entirely new matrices of human happiness, of civic connection, of governmental concepts. All of these things can be done with flagrant disregard for the lessons of the past. And uh, th those are the sort of worrying themes that, that constantly permeate my thinking, and I'm sure m most of you too. Uh, and along comes this beautiful poem. It's nearly 100 years old. It's 98 years old, soon to be 99 years old. The Gods of the Copybook Headings. And... What I thought I would do, I'm going to try and see if this works okay. Um, well, you know what, I'm, I'm going to say, I, I was going to do it stanza by stanza and sort of stop for a little explanation, but you know what, I'm, I'm underestimating you and I'm insulting you. Uh, I'm not going to do that. You, you don't need my explanations uh, for each stanza. I'm going to read the stanzas as clearly as I possibly can. I'm going to read the poem. From beginning to end, it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten stanzas. That's interesting. I wonder if I wonder if he made a ten to correspond to the Ten Commandments. I'm not sure. I just thought of that, and uh, and so I'll have to I'll have to look into that before I tell you any more. But uh, uh, I'm just going to read it, and you, if you are interested, uh, you probably will get yourself a copy of it, easily obtained. If you're not, uh, you will be uh, sadly uh, bored to my dismay, certainly not my intention, and you will uh, just skip ahead. But anyway, here we've got The Gods of the Copybook Headings by Rudyard Kipling, 1919. As I pass through my incarnations in every age and race, I make my proper prostrations to the gods of the marketplace. Peering through reverend fingers, I watch them flourish and fall, and the gods of the copybook headings, I notice, outlast them all. We were living in trees when they met us. They showed us each in turn that water would certainly wet us, as fire would certainly burn. But we found them lacking in uplift vision and breadth of mind, so we left them to teach the gorillas while we followed the march of mankind. We moved as the spirits listed. They never altered their pace, being neither cloud nor wind-borne like the gods of the marketplace. 
but they always caught up with our progress, and presently word would come that a tribe had been wiped off its ice field, or the lights had gone out in Rome. With the hopes that our world is built on, they were utterly out of touch. They denied that the moon was stilton. They denied she was even Dutch. They denied that wishes were horses. They denied that a pig had wings. So we worship the gods of the market who promised these beautiful things. When the Cambrian measures were forming, they promised perpetual peace. They swore, if we gave them our weapons, that the wars of the tribes would cease. But when we disarmed, they sold us and delivered us bound to our foe. And the gods of the copybook headings said, Stick to the devil you know. On the first Fermenian sandstones, we were promised the fuller life, which started by loving our neighbor and ended by loving his wife, till our women had no more children, and the men lost reason and faith. And the gods of the copybook headings said, The wages of sin is death. In the Carboniferous Epoch, we were promised abundance for all, by robbing selected Peter to pay for collective Paul. But though we had plenty of money, there was nothing our money could buy. And the gods of the copybook headings said, If you don't work, you die. Then the gods of the market tumbled, and their smooth-tongued wizards withdrew, and the hearts of the meanest were humbled, and began to believe it was true, that all is not gold that glitters, and two and two make four. And the gods of the copybook headings limped up to explain it once more. As it will be in the future, it was at the birth of man, there are only four things certain since social progress began. That the dog returns to his vomit and the sow returns to her mire, and the burnt fool's bandaged finger goes wobbling back to the fire. And that after this is accomplished, and the brave new world begins, when all men are paid for existing, and no man must pay for his sins, as surely as water will wet us, as surely as fire will burn, the gods of the copybook headings with terror and slaughter return. Good, isn't it? All right, uh, let's do a, a quick break. Uh, we go to the website, if you don't mind, rabbidaniellappin.com. The special resource there right now is called uh, um, the Festival of Lights. Transform your 24-7 existence into a 25-8 life. Right? It's called Festival of Lights. And, uh, of course, we're entering that time of the year now where we will soon have the holiday of Hanukkah, which is called the Festival of Lights. But it's not an accident that Christmas is also celebrated with lights. And uh, it's a beautiful thing. I love seeing when people decorate their homes, in some cases with hundreds of colored lights. And um, it, it, it's a heartwarming sight. It's a good thing that happens. 
So go to rabbidaniellappin.com and read up about Festival of Lights, transform your 24-7 existence into a 25-8 life with a whole lot of information on the Festival of Lights. Okay, uh, your radio rabbi, that's me, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, back with you in just a moment. More to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin, revealing how the world really works. On demand on the Blaze Radio Network. We now return with Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Thanks for being part of it, and always I thank those of you who've done so much to help popularize the show and promote the show and let other people know about its existence. Thank you. You've been doing a phenomenal job. I really appreciate it, and it, it really is for the good of all of us, so thanks a lot. And the uh, topic I was talking about a little bit earlier was that uh, in 1917, December 1917, December the 6th, 1917, uh, there was the biggest non-nuclear explosion, I think, in all of history. Uh, And I'm pretty sure it was the biggest non-nuclear explosion ever. And that was when a ship, uh, it was 1917, America was in World War I, And we um, loaded a ship with uh, a huge quantity of dynamite, of TNT, and um, uh, several other forms of explosive, plus, I think, a few hundred gallons of aviation fuel. Um, Aircraft had just started playing a military role a hundred years ago, just begun, biplanes, and they needed uh, aviation fuel. So uh, the ship was packed full of explosives, TNT, and aviation fuel. And it left New York, and it was on its way to our allies in Europe. It was going to offload in, uh, in England. And uh, it stopped in Halifax. Uh, it's, in other words, it goes up the coast. And the idea was to have the shortest jump across the Atlantic, And so it uh, stopped in Halifax, probably took on fuel, may have changed some sailors, I don't know. But uh, there was another ship maneuvering in the harbor that morning, and the um, I think it was the other ship that made an ill-fated decision to pass uh, the the explosives-laden ship on the wrong side because there was more uh, sea space on that side. So it was the side not according to the rules of the sea, but uh, where there was more room. At any rate, it led to some confusion, and the two ships banged together, and it started a fire. Now, in and of itself, the the two ships banging together was the equivalent of a uh, road fender bender. It was not a big deal. But because the ship was laden with explosives and aviation fuel, Uh, The sparks of the two ships rubbing together started a fire, and uh, the fuel started burning. Well, the sailors on the boat knew exactly what they were carrying, and they uh, leapt for the side. Some of them just jumped overboard. Some of them got into uh, the small uh, lifeboats and started rowing crazily for the shore, leaving their ship to drift towards the Halifax side of the harbor. And it it struck a pier on its way across the harbor, and I think it started a fire on the pier, 
that uh, the Halifax Fire Department sent a truck over to start putting that out. They were still working on that when the ship blew. And um, it was the biggest explosion. And nothing as big had ever happened before. And I think uh, since that time, it still remains the biggest non-nuclear explosion, I believe. And uh, it, uh, as I say, it hurled huge pieces of metal like ship's anchors and cannons uh, three miles in one case, four miles in the other case, um, totally killed 2,000 people right away, blinded hundreds of people, uh, through, caused tsunami, as I said earlier, um, and it uh, made 10,000 people severely injured. Uh, huge numbers of people were homeless. It was an, I mean, it literally it destroyed uh, about a quarter or a third of the city of Halifax. That's how big this thing was. Anyways, uh, people helped each other, people pulled through, um, people helped, you know, I mean, counting the dead was a, a, it was a terrible thing, families dealing with loss. Uh, but during the, the horrible few days following the incident, we're talking winter time, right? Winter time in Halifax it was December the 6th, and th you know, things couldn't have been harder. Uh, no reports of looting, no reports of crime, nothing, my friends, nothing at all. And 2005, we've got Katrina, a disaster of not even close to the same magnitude. And the stories that still resound from New Orleans 2005 uh, are stories of rape and plunder, Stories of uh, police and fire departments being shot at by uh, uh, looters. Uh, policemen just walking off the job, by the way. Uh, stealing cars and just walking off the job, vanishing. Um, it, look, it was an absolute disaster. Those people who are unfortunate enough to have to spend nearly a week in the uh, Super the Dome Stadium, 30,000 people there. It quickly became racial, blacks against whites. Uh, the whites formed uh, defensive little perimeters. Uh, even National Guardsmen said, we're not going to be able to help you. Um, you're going to have to defend yourselves. The women are going to get raped. I mean, this, these are the stories that come out of that. Uh, the looting, immense. What's the difference? What has happened? That was 2005, so less than 100 years we go from Halifax to New Orleans. It's significant. There are changes. Now, I've taken, I think, uh, perhaps two extreme examples. Right? There, have been, there have been other hurricanes and storms that didn't deliver uh, the same level of uh, horror as New Orleans did in 2005. And uh, there are places that, uh, that didn't have quite the same level uh, of civilized behavior as Halifax did. So, you know, there, there's a spectrum there. But nonetheless, times have changed. And it's hard to say for the better. It's quite something. It really is. I also wanted to uh, talk a little bit about masculinity. Uh, the phrase that now has become part of the general war on men, and you know that I've spoken about this before, uh, the idea that the culture is hostile to men, 
uh, hostile to masculinity. And I think we're seeing part of that now. Now, obviously, uh, some of these men with their horrible behavior have been uh, fully complicit in their own downfall, needless to say. Uh, and in many of their cases, they haven't denied it. But uh, nonetheless, blaming their masculinity just doesn't make sense. That, that simply isn't true. As a matter of fact, I argue that the phrase toxic masculinity, which is a very common popular phrase today, I argue that it's an oxymoron. I would say that if somebody's really masculine, then he's not toxic. And if he is toxic, he's not masculine. Um, what is the uh, the you know what what do people think of as toxic masculinity? Uh, Any time a, a a man whistles at a woman walking down the street, that is regarded as absolutely the worst imaginable thing. That's an example of real toxic masculinity. But um, the the truth is that uh, that gang warfare, violent crime. Now, these are areas of, if you like, if you're going to have to use the phrase toxic masculinity, that's perhaps where I would use them. But uh, I've often quoted that um, Professor Camille Paglia, who, who calls herself a feminist, uh, she wrote a book called Sexual Persona. It's a, it's, it's a big, big, complicated book. But one of the uh, phrases in there that I've, I've kept with me is she, and I'm quoting her exactly here. She said, if civilization had been left in female hands, we would still be living in grass huts. And her point, of course, is that uh, the uh, overwhelming majority of all the dangerous jobs that make our comfortable lives possible, uh, deep-sea divers, oil workers, construction workers, uh, people who build buildings and factories, people who create things. Most of these people are men. And uh, now, why do we do those things? I think it's fair to say that having women around is the, the main motivation for us for doing those things, clearly, uh, sex and money. But the idea that, uh, that men are by nature toxic and that the more masculine we are, the more toxic we are. And the only cure for us is to abandon our masculinity and embrace our feminine side. That's, that's what boys are being told. Uh, bad, very dangerous. As a matter of fact, anyone who's raised sons knows how difficult it is to produce masculinity in a boy. It doesn't come naturally, right? Uh, little girls become feminine with almost no effort on the part of their parents. It, it happens automatically. Their bodies help them become who they are. Little boys do not necessarily become masculine. They sometimes become thugs, and they sometimes become wimps. But masculinity is neither thuggishness nor, nor wimpiness. Masculinity is something else altogether. So um, you, I think it's worthwhile remembering that uh, women who are in positions of power and authority and torment a man who works beneath them, nobody says it's because of toxic femininity, and they're right. <coughs> Pardon me. And they're right not to blame her X chromosomes. That woman's failing is a failing of character, not biology, and the same is true of men.
when we use the phrase masculine qualities, right, we're not saying that he has a penis or that he has an X chromosome and a Y chromosome. We're not talking biology. We're speaking of his spiritual qualities. We're thinking of um, strength and confidence and competence and character and his eagerness to support his family financially, his ability, uh, his assertiveness, his ambition. All of these things are a part of his masculinity, but they're not biological things. They're spiritual things. And so um, we just, we've got to remember that masculinity is not thuggishness. Thugs of whatever social station, whether they're politicians, senators, whether they are movie producers, thugs, whatever their social standing, prey on people they can overpower for money and sex that they're unable to secure through service and honor. This is nothing at all to do with masculinity, nothing whatsoever. And uh, I also uh, said I wanted to also spend just a moment uh, saying how pleased I was that this past week President Trump recognized Jerusalem as Israel's legitimate capital. I think it was a good thing for a number of reasons. First of all, I think it's very refreshing for the country uh, to see a, a politician who actually keeps his promise. It's absolutely hilarious to watch these pathetic politicians posturing pompously, criticizing Trump for recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's capital, when they themselves constantly over the last few decades have been speaking about, oh, uh, we, we call on America to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital. And it's all been posturing because they've known full well that they had no intention of carrying through with it. And so now a president actually does what he said he would do during his campaign. He now does it. And all these pygmies come and attack him for doing what they themselves said needs to be done. That's just the humorous side of it. The, the reason I think it's a good thing is because um, I think it's a very good thing for the Arabs to get used to the idea that uh, the West is done with placating. And this idea that if we constantly uh, provide concessions and we constantly uh, find different ways to yield, then they will finally make peace. Something the Israelis learned a long time ago, or should have completely learned, many of them haven't completely, is that uh, uh, placating never works. And I was shocked to see that even in a newspaper of the stature of the Wall Street Journal, there was a warning, oh, Mr. Trump must absolutely not recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital because it will cause Arab violence. Oh, I see. So yielding to blackmail is the way America should go? And I heard lots of politicians saying the same things. This will produce violence. So what? Then you have to deal with that. But why on earth would you want to teach the Arab world and the rest of the world that they've only got to threaten violence and they hold a veto over any American policy. What a dumb thing. And yet, for the first part of this past week, that's what I was hearing. Oh, uh, he mustn't do it. It'll cause violence. Really? Have we sunk to that level where the fear of violence deters us from what we want to do and what we know we should do? 
that's where we're at. And that is the, uh, the, the, the level to which we've sunk from levels of statesmanship that we used to see. You don't even have to go 100 years back. 60 years, 50 years, that'll do it as well. But right now, it's mighty hard to find any manifestation of masculinity, honor, and character in our political leadership. In those areas, there are parts of what President Trump has done in the last year that have been enormously refreshing. And I really do believe that uh, one of the reasons, and I, you know, I've been saying this for over 20 months, uh, one of the reasons that Mr. Trump was appealing is precisely because he wasn't a politician. So one can but hope that though he is in Washington, D.C., he still restrains himself from uh, turning into a politician or doing what the left likes to call growing in office. Let's hope he doesn't do any of that. Okay, my friends, uh, that brings us to as far as we're going to go in today's show. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, wishing you a week of good health and prosperity. I want to remind you, please, to go to the website. It is rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, I'd love you to read about the product that is on special offer. It is called a Festival of Lights. And um, it is the uh, how to transform a 24-7 existence into a 25-8 life. So uh, have a look at that. It's available for instant download. You can get it right away uh, for literally uh, just a handful of dollars. So take a look at that at RabbiDanielLappin.com. Have a wonderful week. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network.